please take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Romans. If you do not have a Bible, there's one in your chair or pew in front of you, and you can find the book of Romans roughly around page 659, I believe, is where you will find it. I'm going to read only two verses this morning, the thesis statement, I believe the thesis statement of the book of Romans, and these words have eternal significance. These are some of the most important words ever written, and they transcend time and all cultures, and they have the ability to change your life today. If you found your way there, please go ahead and stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. I will read these verses, but today I'm preaching an overview of the whole book of Romans. And you should have a handout there that should assist you with some of the key words that are in Romans and to help you to see the main sections of the book. Now let's, let's hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> Barry Bonds was, without a doubt, the most intimidating hitter in all of Major League Baseball history. He is, despite all the controversy surrounding him and his performance-enhancing drugs, the greatest hitter of all time, um, feared. Ironically, Greg Maddox said he's the easiest hitter to pitch to because all you have to do is walk him. So intimidating was Barry Bonds that in May, on May 28th of 1998, when the San Francisco Giants were playing the Arizona Diamondbacks, Buck Shawalter, manager of the Diamondbacks, winning a game by two runs, eight to six, with the bases loaded, Barry Bonds comes up to bat. So he walks Barry Bonds with the bases loaded to bring in a run to hopefully save the game, to rather than to pitch to Barry Bonds with the bases loaded. That's how intimidating uh, Barry Bonds was. Now, I believe... Romans, the book of Romans, is intimidating to many Christians. I believe maybe that level of intimidating. But its influence upon Christianity and really actually the flow of history and really the birth of Western civilization itself is due to the book of Romans. And that's not an overstatement, as we will see as we encounter more various verses that have to do with Romans. God used Romans to change a monk's heart in Germany around 1517 to 1522. He's born again and gave birth to Western civilization as you know it, and it toppled the Holy Roman Empire, and the gospel was reclaimed. And the theology within this book is so deep and so powerful and so moving and so practical some of it, a lot of it, 
very easy to grasp. Anyone can read it and be directly ministered to by God. And yet there are parts of this book that are difficult, that are very difficult, deep, deep theology, hard to understand, perplexing even maybe. And if you ever felt like that, you're not alone, right? I've, so I've been preaching for 12 years, and I've never preached the book of Romans, right? There's a reason for that. I want to make sure I'm ready for this task, ready to do this, ready to explain to you in a down-to-earth manner the truths that are in this book. But you're also not alone because Peter himself, he felt like this about some of Paul's writings. And in 2 Peter 3, he tells us about Paul. He, he says that he wrote Scripture, right? He is acknowledging the apostle Paul and his authority is derived from God to write Scripture. But he says there are some things in his letters that are difficult and hard to understand. That's Peter, another apostle, writing of Paul. Now, I can only speculate at this point, but I think he's probably talking about portions of Romans. He would write that about 10 years after Paul had written this book and no doubt had read this book. Some people will live, consider this too, some people will live their entire lives as a Christian and never heard the book of Romans preached through verse by verse. Isn't that amazing? I think I find that to be absolutely incredible, but that's the reality. And I can't tell you how many Christians I've talked to over the past 12 years that have said something like, I have never heard a sermon from Romans chapter 8 or Romans chapter 9. Right? And so usually, you know, people, if they don't preach the books of the Bible, they pick what they're going to preach on any given Sunday. And it just so happens nobody ever picks those chapters. They're avoided, right? They're given the Barry Bonds treatment. Or they'll say, you know, I asked my pastor about Romans chapter 9, and, you know, I was kind of brushed off that that's, you know, that, that's deep theology, and you're not ready for that, or that's not important. Something to this effect. But today, we're not going to do any of that. We're going to begin a journey, a journey together through the book of Romans. It's one of the most important books in the Bible. As you can see in your handout, a quote from John Calvin. He said, when anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all of the most hidden treasures in Scripture. And I think he's absolutely right that if you understand the book of Romans, you will understand any book in the entire New Testament, and it will also give you the framework for understanding the Old Testament. So how will we proceed on this journey? Well, starting next week, we will begin to go verse by verse through this book. And that will take some time, as many of you probably know from us going through John. So the reality is that many of you will be gone before I ever finish preaching Romans. This will be years from now. So today I want to do something I've never done before, which is to give you an overview of a whole book of the Bible. So that you can see, at least you'll be here this Sunday, you'll have an understanding of the book of Romans, how it's put together, what its main sections are, and what this main theme is. The book of Romans, as you see in your handout, divides into four parts. Now, there are many people who will divide this book up into many uh, more parts than four, and it can be done. But I think these really are a good way to get a grasp of the whole book and the flow of Paul's letter. And these four main sections of Romans become the four main preaching points. 
And by the end, hopefully you'll understand how it's all put together. You'll have an understanding of this gospel. Before we jump in, let me orient you to the book. A little context. Who wrote this book? This book is written by the Apostle Paul. Paul. That's the first word of the book. He is the author. We learn about Paul from the book of Acts. And at the beginning of the book of Acts, you encounter... Paul, he's, he's going by his Jewish name, Saul. Paul is a Greco-Roman pronounce, pronouncing of Saul. So Saul, the apostle Paul, in the beginning of the book of Acts, is most definitely not a Christian. He is, however, very religious, a devout Jew. He's a Pharisee. He will tell us the Philippians, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. So he's an expert of the law. He is very zealous for God. So he doesn't have a dead religion, really. He's zealous Right, he's got energy and passion. And he sees Christianity as a cult, as a perversion of Judaism. And he sees as his mission in life to seek out and to destroy and to stamp out this perversion of his religion. And so he, it would appear, is in charge of a group of Jews who stoned Stephen to death. Stephen, who is preaching the gospel, as you remember, is stoned to death and Paul is the one who holds their, their cloaks or their garments, meaning he's probably in charge, lending approval to what they're doing. But by the end of the book of Acts, the same person is Christianity's number one church planner and preacher. He has, it would appear, in his work, his church planning, his missions, his preaching, surpassed all of the other apostles. So what he once sought to destroy, he's the number one advocate for. And how did this happen? Well, we also find in the book of Acts that this man, the Apostle Paul, he had an encounter with Jesus Christ, a personal, real encounter. Jesus Christ, the resurrected God-man, confronts him on, on the road, the Damascus Road. He's going to Damascus to try to seek out Christians. And Jesus confronts him there. And through that revelation of Christ, through the, the, the direct confrontation, he has to grapple with the reality that Jesus is risen from the dead. And this leads to his conversion. He becomes a Christian. He's born again through his encounter with, with Jesus. And we see the grace of God, the mercy and grace of God, that he would take someone, a persecutor of the church, a hater of the church, and he would turn that man into what would become the greatest theologian one who would write more of the New Testament than anyone, the greatest church planner the world has ever seen. This is the Apostle Paul. The date of the writing, when did he write this? The date of the writing is the best estimate is between 56 and 58 AD. And here's how that date is arrived at. We know from the end of the book of Acts that Paul has, he has these plans and we see them unfold at the end of his third missionary journey he has gathered up a collection of offerings from Asia and Greece to be taken to the church in Jerusalem, to give them as a love gift, to, to unify, hopefully, the churches so that the Jerusalem church can see God has brought in the Gentiles. They're with us. We're all together in this ministry. And so that's his plan. We see from the end of the book of Romans that he, he speaks as if he is writing right before he goes back to Jerusalem to deliver that gift. And so that puts him the best, the best that we can discern, probably at Corinth, 
or the seaport at Corinth in 56 to 58 AD before he goes to take this gift to Jerusalem. He will, of course, be arrested in Jerusalem and spend two years in prisoner there before appealing to Caesar, and he'll make his way to Rome as a prisoner of the empire. God's providence, very interesting. Paul seeks to go to Rome, and he does go. Now, who are these recipients? The Roman church. The Roman church is composed of both Jew and Gentile, though the majority of the people of the church in Rome are Gentiles. They're the majority. And the city of Rome is the capital, obviously, as you know, of the Roman Empire. It's the most influential city in the known world at the time. It's the most important place to have a church with a firm understanding and a real grasp of the gospel. And so it's an important place for him to write to. Paul, though a church planter, he did not plant this church. And against many people's beliefs, uh, particularly the Roman uh, Catholic variety, Peter did not plant the church in Rome either. More likely than not, what happened is that after Pentecost, Christians went back after Pentecost, from that mass conversion of 3,000 people from all backgrounds and ethnicities, and they took the gospel back there. And so they began to form Christian communities, which grew into churches. And of course, Paul and Peter later will make their way to Rome and build that, build that church up. But at this time, they don't know him personally. He doesn't know them personally, though they no doubt have probably heard about the Apostle Paul. After all, who, could not, who, who couldn't hear about a terrorist once persecutor of the church, now converted and being a preacher of the gospel. So he writes to them, the Roman church. Well, what is the purpose of his writing? Well, his purpose, really, it, that's debated as well. You know, everyone is going to debate anything that can be debated. Um, I don't think there's one main purpose. I think that there is uh, probably three purposes, as you'll see in your handout. Number one, to give the most full and clear explanation of the gospel. And that's what you have in the book of Romans. The book of Romans contains the most clear and fullest explanation and the implications that flow out of the gospel. The gospel. That term will be used over and over in the book of Romans. And if you flip your page, you'll see key definitions in their explanation. The gospel means good news. Good news and that's shorthand for, in the book of Romans, when you read gospel, that God has come in human flesh. Jesus was truly God and truly man, that he lived a perfect life for sinners, that he died a sacrificial death on the cross, that he shed his blood, and in the shedding of his blood there is forgiveness of sins, and that he actually did die, go into death. He was dead for three days, buried, but three days later he rose from the dead, conquering over death. He has risen to eternal life, the firstborn from the dead, and he offers eternal life to anyone who will simply believe. This is good news. How do I be made right with God? Simply by faith in the gospel. Good news. And so he writes to give a very clear and full picture of the gospel. And the reason he does this is, remember, they haven't met him yet, and he plans to visit them, and there are people saying all kinds of things about Paul's gospel at this time. All right, for one, he's battling with the Judaizers, as he has in Greece and in Asia Minor. But there are people saying things about Paul's gospel, um, which is interesting. It kind of, how do you know you got the gospel right? Well, people might say these same things about you. For instance, people would say things like, the gospel nullifies the law. 
Let's say, Paul, you preach contrary to the law. You're nullifying what God has previously said. And he, he'll say the strongest answer to that, by no means. We don't abolish the law. We actually uphold the law. Or they'll say, you're preaching grace. And because of grace, you're saying that we can keep on sinning because God gets glory when he forgives a sinner. So can't we just continue to sin so that grace may abound? And he'll say, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See how he's clarifying all of these things of the gospel. Or some will say, as we get to Romans chapter 8, 9, and 10, and 11, that will say, is there not, if election is true, Paul, if there is a remnant chosen by grace, isn't there injustice on God's part? Isn't God unjust? And he'll answer that again, by no means. And he'll elaborate on how the, the justice of God is revealed. Or they'll say, if the gospel is true, then what then concerning the Jews? Does it mean that the word of God has failed? Because the Jews don't accept this gospel. Again, he'll say, by no means. I'm a Jew. And God has a remnant chosen by grace, as he has through all time and in the Old Testament. So you have this big, clear, full explanation of the gospel, which answers all of these accusations that people have. And so he wants the Romans to know he is preaching the true gospel, consistent with the Old Testament, and it removes these type of accusations. But second, he wants to unify Jew and Gentile believers in Rome around the one and only true gospel so that they might together might bring glory to God. But that's kind of how the whole letter is unfolding until we get to the end. That's how it's framed. You'll see it driving all the way to chapter 15 where he will say, so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking to these groups which the world can't reconcile. There's so much hostility and animosity between Jew and Gentile. He's saying that so together with one voice you might glorify God. So he's driving for the glory of God through the unification of the believers in Rome, Jew and Gentile. But third, to garner support for future missions to Spain. In chapter 15, he makes his, his plans very clear. You know, he has plans. He wants to come to Rome to encourage them and also to be encouraged by these other believers there in Rome. And then he plans to go from Rome to Spain because the gospel hasn't been preached in Spain, and that's his mission. He is the apostle to the Gentiles, and he wants to take Christ everywhere he has not been named among the Gentile pagan nations. And so what do you need before you arrive? You need a people united around the gospel, unified together in that, so that together they can support the work of the ministry at other places. And so his goal is to support future missions to Spain. See how it fits all together? A clear gospel, unifying a church so the church together can take the gospel where Christ has yet to be named. And Paul, he is proud of this gospel. He's very proud of it. He's not ashamed of it. In fact, that's the thesis statement which we read earlier. The main thesis statement of the letter, Romans 1, 16 through 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God of salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed for faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's it. So that's this book right there in a few short sentences. Everything else just emerges from that, is elaborated on, explained the implications of that truth to your living as a Christian in this world. It all flows from that. 
So this morning, here's what I want to do in this overview, a quick overview of the main sections of Romans that serve this thesis statement, that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, and we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel either. So I'm going to give you four reasons from the four main sections of Romans to not be ashamed of this gospel. Four reasons to not be ashamed of the gospel. That's my whole purpose, to give you a full understanding of the book. You can see how it's put together. You can see the main sections. You can see where Paul is taking us so that you would not be ashamed of the gospel. And if you're here today and you aren't a Christian, to hear the gospel. And then hopefully, Lord willing, that you would believe it. So today, four reasons to not be ashamed of the gospel. Number one, do not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the gospel of justification. This is the first section. Section Chapters one through four is this section. It is the gospel of justification. I was once at a mall in Kansas City doing what most men do when their wife is shopping, sitting down uh, in a chair or a table or something. So I'm just sitting there and an Indian man comes over and sits next to me. He's a Sikh Indian and I recognize this because of the turban. The Sikh Indian wears a turban. Right? The Sikh Indians are different from other Indians. They believe in one true God, the creator of all things. And they obviously believe some other stuff, as you'll see. So I begin to engage with him. We're talking. I begin to engage with him about the gospel. And he says, hang on. Let me stop you right there. We believe in Jesus too. And I say, oh, really? So he grabs a napkin and he draws a diagram. And it almost looks like a highway. And the highway has these on-ramps. And so he would label, you know, one on-ramp, he would label Buddha. And then he would label one like Zoaster. Uh, Muhammad, Jesus, right? So he had all of these big religious leaders on there. And he said, we believe that the one true God, many paths to the one true God, and all religions are fine and equal. And the goal is the idea. And however you get to that goal is what we believe. And so I said, really, that's interesting to me that, I mean, you have Muhammad on here, uh, the Muslims invaded your country, and the, particularly the region you're from, over a 500-year period, killed 60 to 80 million of your own people. And he said, well, well, maybe we can take Muhammad off of this list. And he scratches Muhammad off. <laughs> so, I'm like, okay, well, we're not going to go through each of these all day long. Let me just tell you what Jesus said. Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's pretty exclusive. There's one way on this highway through Jesus, and all of the rest are counterfeits. In fact, what's interesting is all of these other religions point to Jesus as one who has true teaching. But Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So we can mark everyone else off of this list. Romans 1 through 4. Romans chapter 1 through 4 is Paul's explanation of that truth. There is only one way to be reconciled to God. Only one. And it is by justification through faith alone in Christ alone. That's chapters 1 through 4. Okay? The word he uses is justified, and you'll see an explanation of that on the back of your handout. But just, to be justified means to be declared right. To be declared, to be declared righteous or in the right. 
Now, it's a legal statement, so you have to picture in your mind, and the first part of Romans is a ve- it's very legal. The language is very legal. Picture yourself as standing before a judge, and you're on trial. And at the end of the trial, the judge doesn't declare you, yeah, you did the crime, but I'm going to pardon you. That's not a declaration of righteousness or justification. If the judge declares you not guilty to have never done the crime and to be in right standing with the court, that's a legal declaration of justification. Right? So Paul drives at this. There is one way to be right with God. All stand before God condemned, but some are declared to be in the right. And how are they declared to be in the right? It is simply on the basis of faith in what Jesus has accomplished. Now, to to get there, what he does is you'll see there's a a general, it's actually more than general, it's packed with theology, this introduction. But then he shifts, right, in, in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So to get there, to that understanding, what he does is he starts with the Gentiles. The church is composed of two main ethnicities you've got the jew and like everyone else is a gentile doesn't matter who you are right where you come from you're a gentile and so he starts there in this whole section in the beginning of chapter one he just elaborates on the debauchery and the the sinfulness of mankind what happens to a culture that is steeped in idolatry and all of the negative things that happen to a culture, right? And so it's like, look how lost Gentiles are in their sin. That's what he does. And so the whole time that's going on, you've got the Jews over here, and they're like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we already knew all of that. The Gentiles are pagans. They're cut off from God. They're lost in sin. They're separated from God. And then in chapter 2, oh, a surprise, right? Who are you, O man, right? Who's the old man? The old man is the Jew standing in judgment upon the Gentile. He'll say, you're even worse. You're a sinner too. But it's even worse because you have the law. You have the prophets. You have all of these these blessings and you still practice the very same things that the pagan Gentiles do. And so what he does is he is universally getting everybody on the same footing. And that's the footing of the condemned. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Jew or Gentile. And he's setting the whole thing up where he can show that there is only one way to be made right with God. Romans 3, 22 through 25. Listen to the language. There is no distinction between what? Any culture on earth, Jew or Gentile or any other, what we would call culture that exists today. There's no distinction. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's a key, this is a key verse. This is where he's driving at in this whole section. Universal condemnation for all men, but there is a way universally available to all men. Justification by faith alone, apart from works, in blood sacrifice of Christ. And then he gives a illustration, a great illustration in chapter 4 using Abraham. Right? Abraham is the illustration that is given. 
And so the question that, that he brings, he brings Abraham up because before Abraham ever did any good work, before Abraham was ever circumcised, the Bible says that he was declared righteous by God, by faith alone. So this isn't a new gospel Paul has dreamed up, as some would accuse him. He's not preaching anything new. He's preaching the gospel, the same type of faith Abraham had, justified him, is now available for us. In chapter 4, 23, 23, we read these words. But the words, it was accounted to him, speaking of Abraham, the words it was accounted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be accounted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Listen to what he says. Those words were not just written for Abraham. They're written for our sake. They're written for you so that you may be a partaker of the same faith which justified Abraham before God. Faith alone, apart from works, in Christ. And so maybe you're here today and you have never trusted in Christ. He's the only means of salvation. All men stand condemned before a holy God. You won't do enough good works to make yourself right with God. You won't attain peace with God via your own works, through faith alone, in the work of Christ alone. And you can believe on Christ today. You can. Will you hear the gospel, turn from your sins, and trust Christ? That's our hope. So don't be ashamed of this gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's the gospel of justification. But also don't be ashamed of the gospel because it's the gospel of new creation. And this is chapters 5 through 8. Chapters 5 through 8. Think, think about a funeral. Maybe think about all the funerals you've gone to maybe in the past 10 years. Okay? Put yourself there. Are you there? Now what does everybody say about the departed that dies? That's right. Yeah, they're... They're in a better place. They were a good man. She was a good woman. It doesn't matter. This person may have been a, a, like an abuser. He may be a spouse abuser. He may have been abandoned his children early in life, and now he's died an old man. Right? He could be a terrible person. They're always going to say he's in a better place. They're always going to say that. In America, no matter what, that person is in heaven. In reality, the religion of America is this. Americans believe in justification by death. That's the American religion. Justification by death. And through death, receiving all of the blessings that God has to give someone, right? Access to God, peace, eternal life. Justification by death. That's what Americans believe. But look at chapter 5. Chapter 5 begins... All of the benefits that our culture would bestow upon somebody, impart upon the deceased, they don't come by death. They only come by faith alone, in Christ alone. So the benefits of our justification are elaborated on in chapters 5 through 8. You see the shift. Therefore, chapter 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's where it begins, peace with God. But then he'll elaborate on all of these in the coming chapters, let me quickly list some of the benefits of justification by faith alone. Peace with God. Salvation from the wrath of God. The gift of the Holy Spirit. That God would 
impart to you, to give, he would give to you, that he would become so near to you that God himself would indwell your body. That's Christianity 101, not advanced theology. And that comes by justification through faith alone. Jesus as an eternal representative before God, right? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that is the one who raised and indeed is sitting at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf right now. Eternal representation before God. The righteousness of God given to you as a gift. We don't just get forgiveness. We don't just get declared righteous. We get made righteous. We receive the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Eternal life. Who doesn't want to live forever? But for the Christian, living forever doesn't start when you die. Eternal life is a gift that's given upon justification by faith alone. You leave the old world behind and you become part of something new. The ability to kill sin in your life. Yes, Christians still struggle with sin. Who, being honest here today, would dare to say that they don't struggle with sin? In Romans chapter 7, we get a very, very down-to-earth and real testimony about the Apostle Paul and his struggle and his battle against his flesh nature. But how we see through the power of the Holy Spirit, we aren't slaves to sin anymore. We can actually overcome it and kill sin in our life. Direct ministry to your soul by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit intercedes and prays for you when you don't know what to pray. Adoption as the sons of God. I mean, how great are these benefits? To be adopted as one of God's children into his family through Christ, our brother. Ability to persevere through suffering. Everyone suffers. But the Christian can persevere through that suffering, knowing that God is using it to conform them into the image of Christ. God's eternal love. The promise of the resurrection of your dead body. Like, there is no religion on earth like Christianity. The promise that you will live again in a physical body. The promise of a new creation. All of creation redeemed because of Christ. The whole universe. What do you see the universe as now? It's in chaos, suffering and pain and death. And one day, our benefit is we get to live with Christ in a new creation. Incredible benefits. Only through justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Think back to my Sikh friend. Right? What is his end goal of the Sikh? He believed in a, a constant cycle of rebirth. He believed you live a good life, you can, be re, you can reincarnate at, in like a better state than you were before. You know, so you know, one day, you, in one life you were a poor person suffering in the street, but you, through a series of works and being a good person, you know, now you're sitting in a mall talking to a Christian, right? That's how it works. But the end goal is to escape that cycle to completely break the cycle of rebirth. And then you'll return to God, of which you all have a spark of the divine in you anyway. So you return to God and you become nothing. You become nothing. You lose your identity. You're gone. Your body, gone. Everything about you that makes you you, gone. Right? That's the goal. And that spirituality is rapidly spreading. Is rapidly spreading in the West. It's all over America today. But not only that type of perversion growing in the West, but growing in the church and really widespread in the church 
is the belief, the wrong belief, that the end goal of the Christian life is to go to heaven. And that might take you back for a second if you never have encountered what I'm about to say. The end goal of the, of the Christian life is not to go to heaven, right? It, 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 heaven will be amazing. When you die, absent from the body, present with the Lord, you will be with him. But I have news for you. What does it mean to be a person? It means to have a body. God made man in his image, and they weren't a disembodied in a disembodied state. And the goal is not a disembodied state with God forever. And the goal is not to eradicate this world and then we just live in a spiritual plane. That's not the end goal of Christianity. The end goal of Christianity is new creation. A new recreated reality. That's physical. Right? See, one of the problems for C.S. Lewis and his conversion was he say, I, I, there are so many good things in this world, right? Food, drink, Walking with your wife on the beach, art. Like, there is a lot of good things in this world. And he's like, I just can't imagine heaven is a place without any of these good things. Like, that doesn't make sense. And that's because he didn't understand Christianity, that that's not the goal. The end goal is a new creation, a recreated world because of Jesus Christ. That's the final goal. You don't lose your individuality, you don't lose your body, you don't lose creation. You get all of those things. And that's what this gospel is. Now, in 5 through 8, Paul uses two human representatives to get us to this truth. Okay? And the theological term is federalism. And all that really means is a representative. What the representative does, all of those that are under that representative, in that representative, what the representative does, you do. So in Adam, there are two, right? Adam and Christ. Adam represents the old creation. This world, this messed up world that we're in, Adam. Adam rebelled and sinned against God. Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin spread to all men. Why do people die? Why do we die in this reality? Because of Adam. Why do we sin? Because we sinned in Adam, and then as soon as we're able, we sin too. He's our representative. So whether you're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter what culture you're from, wherever you live on the face of the earth, Naturally, you are born in Adam, but the last Adam, Jesus Christ, is a new representative. Now, anyone that is in Christ receives all of the benefits that Christ has achieved for us. He was perfect. Everywhere Adam failed, he succeeded. He was faithful. He loved the Lord of God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength every day. He fulfilled the law, kept it perfectly and so all of those benefits of his act of obedience flow to us free, apart from works. And God counts us righteous. But then he dies for his people. The wages of sin is death. We learned the beginning of Romans. And so we deserve to die. But if we're in Christ, his death is our death. Your sin wage is paid in your representative. He rises from the dead the firstborn of a new creation, what do you think that means for us? We must rise again as well. But it isn't just individual either. What Christ has done has implications for the whole created order. The whole created order, Romans chapter 8 tells us, Romans chapter 8, 20 through 23, if you look there, the whole creation is groaning and is just like in the pains of childbirth because it's been subject to futility by the sin of man, right? You see the whole created order, the weather, disease, sickness. The world is broken. 
And the creation itself is eagerly awaiting a day. And what day is that? The day is the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection of the dead. Because on that day, all of the created order will be redeemed. So this is a, this is a big gospel. You guys see how big it is? We're just talking about individual salvation here. We're talking about new creation stuff. We're talking about new society, new humanity, Christ as the head. If you're in Christ by faith, all of those benefits come to you. It's amazing. The gospel is amazing. So you shouldn't be ashamed of this gospel. It is the most unique religion on earth, far surpassing anything. Oh, my goal is to become nothing. Who would want that? How about you, with no sin, being perfected in Christ, enjoying every good thing that God ever made with God. Heaven is God forever, forever, creating art, making music, building masterpieces, enjoying food. There is nothing like this gospel on earth. This is not a gospel to be ashamed of. We shouldn't be ashamed of this gospel because it's the gospel of justification and it's the gospel of new creation. But it's also the gospel of integration. The gospel of integration. When I say those words, integration, what comes to your mind as Americans? Maybe if you're my age or older, probably what comes to mind is desegregation. Desegregation. For years, our nation operated under segregation laws not just between blacks and whites, but between whites and Orientals and everyone else, right? Shameful time in our history. Now, a huge turning point was that, for that was Brown versus Board of Education. In 1954, unanimous ruling came down by the Supreme Court that all schools had to desegregate. They saw the segregation was not equal. It's not separate, but equal. It's actually very unequal. So they must integrate. That process would be very slow and very painful and so in 1957, I didn't know if you know this or not, but 1,000 paratroopers were called up to go to a school in Little Rock, a high school, Central High School, Little Rock, Arkansas, so that uh, the black students could be protected as they walked into school. The racial tension was very high. It's hard looking back now to even imagine such a world that existed here. We've come a long way, but yet, in many ways, we haven't come very far. Because what is the most segregated time now in America? Well, the Army is not, is not segregated really at all, is it? Many of you serve. But what is the most segregated time in America? Is it not Sunday? Sunday morning in American churches still remains the most segregated time in, in America. Now, there are many cultural reasons for this, for sure. Um, and no doubt our history as a nation plays a role. However, I think the main issue is this. Many churches in America simply have the gospel wrong, right? So you'll find some great communities, like maybe where H.B. Charles preaches. You've got black churches, and they really have the gospel right. But who's all around them? White churches that have the gospel really wrong, right? And then you can flip that. But the gospel integrates people together. The most, the most diverse integrated church I've ever been, a, been to, ever, and it's not even close, 
comes from a, a, a pulpit that never preaches on race and isn't caught up in social justice at all. And it's not even close is John MacArthur's church in Los Angeles, California. Incredibly diverse. Amazing. Went there one Sunday. I sat next to this, this guy. He was like a, he's like a cholo gangbanger. Like teardrop tattoos and all. And... I'm like, hey, tell me about yourself. He's like, I, you know, I was, one day I was just happened to turn the radio station and I heard preaching and it was the gospel. He's like, and I believed and I came here and I haven't ever missed a Sunday ever since. I've been here every Sunday, right? Said in some sections and it's, and it's large sections of black people. Some, or it, it, it's various oriental people, Koreans, Japanese, Chinese. It's, I mean, it's like L.A., Right? But they're all mixed together in the church, and race isn't even a thing for any of them. They naturally integrated and united around the one gospel of Jesus Christ. There can never be real integration apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our cultures are too separate and diverse. We have so many things to keep us apart. And that's what this, the section is here. This section... The gospel of integration, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Amazing section. The tension that our nation has experienced between black and white is the level of type of tension that existed between Jew and Gentile. Though with even a longer history of being separate from each other and not mixing and holding each other in suspicion. And what do we see happen in these chapters? God has one people. That's what these chapters are about. God has one people, the people of God. The Gentiles, through Christ, have been integrated into the root, who is Christ, right? The Jews, for a time, in the hardness of their heart, have been cut off. But, by faith in Christ alone, they too can be engrafted back in to the one people of God. That's, that's what these chapters are about. See, there's questions. Right? What about the Jews? And that's how he starts. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. For this time in history, the majority of Jews are their hearts are hardened, and they don't see Christ as their Messiah. They have been cut off. And Gentiles receive by faith alone, through Christ alone, an engrafting. They're engrafted in. They're integrated into the people of God. That which was impossible before, before you wanted, if you wanted to be a people of God, you had to become a Jew. Take circumcision. Do all of the law, the ceremonies, all of it. Right, keep all of the hundreds of laws. But now, simply by faith alone, any Gentile is integrated by faith alone in Christ alone into the people of God. God is making for himself one people. So what then, he brings up these questions, like what does it mean now for the Jewish people? Is God done with these people? And he says, by no means, I'm a Jew. God has maintained, through the doctrine of election, a remnant for himself. And so we get these great, deep, theological statements and lessons about predestination and election, and they dominate these passages. 
And where it's leading is to the end in 11, where we, could, we can believe and have faith that God is not done, right? God's promises have not failed. His word has not failed. The Jews for a time are hardened, but there is coming a time where they will in mass, I believe, this will happen at the very end of time, you will see because election is true, because the effectual calling is true, that God will save a mass of the Jewish people. And they will be engrafted back into the one people of God. And in the one people of God, what we have is a multi-ethnic people. You don't lose your identity, your ethnicity, your culture. You bring all of that with you into the one diverse people of God composed of Jew and Gentile. That's Romans 9 through 11. And now it's packed with all kinds of stuff that's going to make you could turn your whole worldview upside down. And we're going to get there. And so you guys have like probably a year or two to prep for that. Get yourself ready. Look at Romans eleven seventeen 17 uh, through, through 24. Go back and read that. It's exactly what I just said to you. So we don't become arrogant toward those who have been cut off. Those of us who have been saved by faith alone, we should, the last thing we should be is to be arrogant. We're a wild branch engrafted into Christ. And Paul holds out this future hope. And there's the key verse here in this section, Romans eleven twenty-eight through 32. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So the same way you got in, is the same way they'll get back in. Grace alone, mercy, faith alone. Do you see how Romans is unfolding? There is the presentation of the purest gospel, the gospel of justification. There are the benefits, he elaborates on them, that flow out of that, the gospel of new creation. And then there's this gospel of integration. People who could never reconcile, who could never be together, are integrated into the one people of God. No distinction between Jew and Gentile before God's just judicial administration. And so we shouldn't be ashamed of this gospel. It's amazing. This gospel is amazing. It does what nothing on earth can do, bringing people together who would never be together otherwise. So the first reason not to be ashamed of the gospel, because it's the gospel of justification. Second reason, it's the gospel of new creation. Third, it's the gospel of integration. Now, lastly... It's the gospel of unification. This is chapters 12 through 16. University, or unity and diversity is only possible in Christ. That's it. It's, it's not possible any other way. This is, this is the goal, the end goal of chapters 12 through 16. To unify these people, right? It's not enough for them to ontologically, to the reality of their being, to actually be one, it's not enough for them to know that theology that they are made one people in God. They have to, in practice, actually become one. They have to become unified. And that's 12 through 16. It's the practical chapter. So you'll see in your handout, you'll see there's two large divisions. There's the theology of the gospel, 
doctrine, all of that. And then in 12, that, it now becomes theology applied. It becomes very practical on day-to-day living of your life. That which is true must become a reality in unity. In 12, 1 through 2, he appeals to the Christians. If you look at 12, 1 through 2, both groups are to now live their lives as a living sacrifice. So together, you, the church, to live your life as a living sacrifice. Step one to unity in the church. You are to view now everything you do in this world through one lens. That's the lens of worship. So whether you are a shoe cobbler, you make armor for the Roman Empire, right? Maybe you were at one time a leader in the Jewish community. Whatever you do now, your whole life is worship. And that's how it begins. And then 3, 12, 3 through 21, the justified believer is then to act humbly toward one another and toward outsiders. Why is the church so weak in the West? Well, one reason is that many people don't understand the gospel. They have the gospel completely wrong. There's a lot of various different reasons. People attacks on the inerrancy of the scriptures, all kinds of things, right? But one reason the church is weak in the rest, the, the church in the West is really weak, is that people are not walking humbly toward God and toward other Christians, right? If you are in this position of one who is justified by faith alone in Christ, any person, right, that is a brother or sister in Christ, the way we walk toward them should be marked by humility. That's not what we see in the West, in America in the West. And there's no more apparent, I think, illustration than this, more obvious than, than social media for Christians or Christian Twitter. Christian Twitter is a war zone of people living the antithesis of what Paul will call these Roman Christians to live, not walking in humility toward each other. It's the exact opposite. You have pastors there promoting themselves, right? Promoting themselves, but pastors are really, they're really sly. They're really sly, right? Pastor self-promotion always comes veiled in false humility, that people need to hear this, or I'm correcting some theological error. There's something, you know, it's for the sake of the church. So pastors are really good at hiding their own self-promotion and the seeking of their own glory and the seeking of the glory of God and the building up of the church. All the while hiding that what they're doing is building their own platform, building themselves. But also you have just regular Christians on there, like Google theologians, right? Google theologians, they're experts at building straw mans and burning them down to death. And they do it with such vitriol, but also with ignorance that they're not even aware that they have. Arrogant in tone, arrogant in argument, ungraceful in that not presenting other sides accurately. This is not how we are to walk. We are to walk humbly toward God and toward those who have partaken of this justification by faith alone. That's not a hard command to follow. Chapter 13 is about how Christians walk toward life, toward the outsider, toward non-believers. How Christians should submit to their governments and their governing authorities. Those instituted by God for the good of society. In chapter 14, get in some real practical Real practical ways the Christian can live humbly toward other Christians, 
right? So some Jews, you have to put yourself back in that time frame, right? Real Christians, justified by faith. you got two groups. Some Jews still keep the Sabbath. They still keep the Sabbath. They still keep all of the festivals. They still believe circumcision should be given. But they are legitimate believers. Now, in Romans, they're called the weaker brother. In Romans, they're called the weaker brother. And so he addresses the stronger brother and the weaker brother in this section. He says in in 14, as for the one who is weak, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. These are pretty big things, guys, if you think about it, okay? One esteems, he says, one esteems one day better than the other. So be it. Be convinced in your own mind. Don't fight over it. One doesn't eat meat. Maybe it's pork, but the Gentile Romans do. Don't quarrel over this. Can you imagine? Just imagine, okay? In our membership, let's suppose that an ethnic Jew who is like a serious follower of the Old Testament, okay? Let's suppose God opens their eyes. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. They repent of their sin. Repent of even their works-based righteousness that they're trying to attain. And they are justified by faith alone and Christ alone. And they now are one of our brothers and sisters, right? And they're a member of our church, okay? Well, let's say they still keep the Sabbath on Saturday. They still come to church with us. They do everything with us. They keep the Sabbath on Saturday, though. And they always keep those festivals. And they like it. They're proud of it. That's their heritage. And they don't eat pork, right? They don't eat meat. Okay. Are you going to see as your personal mission in life to convince them to change their mind? If so, you've got the wrong spirit. Paul never addresses any of that. That it's the goal of the Gentile to see that they don't need to keep Sabbath on Saturday anymore. They don't need the festivals anymore. They can eat pork, right? Pork is its own testimony. You just got to give it a try first. But he, he doesn't need any of that. And so imagine they would to come and they, maybe they would to be offended by us eating pork in our fellowship meal. What would be the right thing for us to do? Don't eat it in front of them. How many of you would die to yourself that way for someone who's a Christian? Or would you see like, I am a crusader to see that they can see that all, all foods are now clean in Christ. They don't, they don't need to, to do that anymore. They don't need to keep Sabbath anymore. These are the real-world issues going on in in Romans, in the Roman church. Now, one way you might can identify with that today is maybe with alcohol. This can apply. So there are some of you here that are okay with drinking alcohol. There are some of you here that abstain completely from alcohol. You're a teetotaler, and you don't believe that people should drink alcohol. So be it. Each be convinced in his own mind. Don't quarrel over it. The worst thing you can do is to quarrel with another believer, right? I, th- I think the more I read the Bible, it's like, don't apostatize. That, that's a terrible sin to, to apostatize, right? The worst. Well, what's the second worst? Maybe it's fighting with other Christians. Have you ever considered how all this is addressed? How much you're called to die to yourself, to live humbly toward other believers? Because not everybody's where you're at. There are probably people here that are in here today that are where you are with the doctrine of election and the doctrines of grace. Okay. Each person be convinced in their own mind. What about eschatology? How many churches see like splitting over eschatology now? It's ridiculous. 
see people leaving our, leaving a church, like I got a faithful preacher in the pulpit expositing God's word. And there are people that will leave that church because they're not post-mill. That's the new trend today, right? Post-mill is just your grandfather's dispensationalism. It's culturally popular. Sorry to offend everybody. But the arguments for these things haven't changed in hundreds of years. There are cultural waves that grow in popularity. Whatever your eschatology is, you're welcome here. But the one thing you won't do is fight with someone else over it. That's ridiculous. Live humbly toward one another. That's what he's getting at. And they have big, these are these big cultural issues and problems that they've got to work out. The only way they can work them out is if the reality of Jesus Christ and what he did and his humility and his example takes root and takes hold in a believer's life, right? Christ humbled himself, counted other people as more significant than himself. That's how Paul will elaborate on this in the book of Philippians. And we're to have that mind about ourselves and live humbly, Jew and Gentile, can be in a church together in unity with, with very stark cultural differences because of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And the goal, the final goal, the main goal of the letter is the unity of the church to the glory of God. Romans 15, 5 through 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Do you see how this whole letter is building to this? That you with one voice... The glory of God supreme in the apostles' mind as the end goal of the church. United in the gospel, receiving all the benefits of justification by faith alone. Looking in hope to a new creation in the resurrection of the dead. Integrated together and actually united through the humility that Christ brings to the believer's life for the purpose of the glory of God among all nations. That's the book of Romans. I'm excited to get into this book. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't you ever be ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. And we've seen today that the gospel is the gospel of justification, the gospel of new creation, the gospel of integration, and the gospel of unification. This is Romans. It's a glorious book, deep, massive theology, but also incredibly practical and anyone can read it and generally understand it if you can see the main sections, if you can see how it unfolds. Amazing book, and it's true, as Calvin said, that when anyone gains a knowledge of this book, he has an entrance open to him to all of the hidden treasures of Scripture. And God has preserved this through time for us. Praise God for that. If you're here today and you aren't a Christian, you've heard this wonderful gospel and I'm wondering if you might want to talk with me more about that and so that you could learn more about Christ and what he's done. I'd love to talk with you. My phone number and so are the other elders. Their, our phone numbers are on the bulletin. Our emails are there. I'll meet with you afterward. Maybe you're here today and you say, I, I felt convicted of my sin and God has made it true. He's made it true for me like that. I see that Christ is who he says he is. 
and I want him to save me from my sins. If that's you today, please talk to me after the church service, and I can talk to you more about that. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. The book of Romans. God, I pray that you would build our church up over the course of these next few years as we go through this book. And God, I pray that you would bless us with seeing many people called out of darkness and into your marvelous light through the truth of your word. That the gospel of justification by faith would be made clear and made known. That we would glorify you in bringing many sons to glory and saving many sinners. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.